11, 7 through 10. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Thank you, sister. Hey, good morning, everyone. So I'm Juan. I'm one of the elders here at Church in the Square. I oversee finances for the church. So just to prepare you guys, there will probably be some references of numbers or formulas in part of my sermon. I can't help myself. I try not to include them, and that's why I didn't even run it past my wife this time, because she probably would have taken them out, but it's fine. Um, No, but I'm really, really really happy to be here. Jason, our elder over teaching, is actually uh, helping to uh, teach at another uh, church today. And really, I want to just start with Thanksgiving for that, right? I'm thankful that during Jason's sabbatical, we had uh, four different teachers from around the city. I think we had uh, Steve Laughlin, uh, Steve Kobol, we had Brian Dye, um, and Danny Lopez, right? Men of God from our community that were able to come in and share uh, the truth about Christ with their kind of perspective and their lens. And it's really cool that Jason's able to do the same thing for a partner church. So I think that shows just growth in our church and maturity. And I'm thankful to, to all of you guys for allowing that to happen. And I think number two is, to be honest, I'm, I'm, I started a new job a couple months ago. And so when Jason asked me to share, I was like, dude, I won't be ready. So he, uh, he prepared the manuscript for me. So it's just <laughs> so you guys know, you know, I'm not, you know, so most of it's going to be. So if I say some things that are like, you know, are Jasonisms, it's probably because it is him. I'm like reading off of it. I try to strip that out, but it, it might be there still. Uh, and really, like, the other thing I was thankful for is I just want to, like, be, like, God this week was reminding me of his goodness and just being able to celebrate with a body over my wife's pregnancy. She's 38 weeks, two days today. And, and, and you guys know, like, it's been a, our family planning journeys taken probably four years at this point. And I remember um, being able to sit with many of you and share the news and literal, like, tears of joy were some of the people's reactions. Uh, Derek and Brad, I remember in particular. <laughs> and just to see a brother, you know, a brother in Christ, like, to cry over uh, us, you know, seeing um, the birth of a child is just, just amazing and, and reminds me of the beauty of being in community, right? Like, the, the great thing about not only being able to pray for each other in those challenging times and seasons, which we do, and we remember those, but also just being able to celebrate together, right? That's, that's important. And, um, you know, as I was preparing for this sermon, the other thing I thought about was, you know, last time I was up talking to you all was at a membership gathering, and I was giving an update on the finances, and I think it was uh, one sentence long and took about five seconds. And I got tons of uh, positive feedback about how great the update was. So I was really tempted. I was really tempted to just make this a five-minute sermon and call it a day and thought maybe that could work a little bit better. But uh, I promise I probably won't be as long-winded as, as Jason typically is. So. so in a good way, in a good way. I'm just saying I'm just more direct. I can't help myself. So. Uh, 
Um, cool. So um, if you've been tracking with us, uh, you'll, you'll be able to see that we've been going through the Book of Romans the last really two years or so, and um, we, we've really been exploring um, chapters 9 through 11 in the most kind of recent months, and in this section, Paul is speaking to his, um, a, a mixed audience in Rome, right? He's speaking to Jews and Gentiles alike, but in chapters 9 through 11, he really starts to focus in on the Jewish people. And what he's focusing in on is what he calls um, their Jewishnessness, which means kind of their culture, their heritage. But really, he's, it's, it's the way that they kind of looked at the world. Um, it's that their knowledge and understanding of the law, including that and the obedience of the law, didn't make them righteous. So Paul was really digging deep into that, right? And that's what we're going to be digging into uh, today. Um, so why doesn't uh, the law make us righteous? Well, Paul actually talks about this in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. He says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. So what does the law do, right? The law reveals sin. The law doesn't make you righteous. Only Jesus does. And only the gospel of grace makes you righteous. We, you know, most of you in this room probably know that already. And you've probably heard it over and over in this series. But if you really look, Paul continues to go at length and drive the point home. Because one of the things we've always talked about at church is it's not about whether you know if this is true, right? The question is, do you and I believe that this is true? Do we center our lives around this reality? Is this something that we're grounded on? Because on our own, we tend to disbelieve the gospel of grace in how we live, in how we act, and how we worship. And so Paul repeats this theme again over and over and over. And I do feel it's a sense of God... God's goodness to remove any remnant of self-righteousness in us, uh, any deception in our hearts, because he's gracious. And he's also wanting to calm any fears that you and I may have and give us more faith. So what have we been covering? The end of Romans 10, we saw that our reception of the gospel is not predicated on knowledge or on understanding, but on the grace and sovereignty of God. And last week, Jason covered Romans 1, 11, 1 through 6, and we dug deeper into grace, right? We, we looked at three things about grace. Number one is that we can trust in grace. Number two is that grace exposes the judgment that you and I have in our hearts. Number three is that Jesus is grace in the flesh. And today, I want to walk through three separate points in this passage. Number one is to go through the paradox of righteousness we're going to talk about the gift of consequence. And then lastly, look at the unique power of grace. So let's look at the passage one more time. It says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. 
As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Will you pray with me? Father, I'm just thankful for your presence. Lord, thank you for um, your Holy Spirit, um, for the power and gentleness that he provides. Lord, thanks that he abides in us. Lord, I pray uh, for your guidance this morning because I know that apart from you, I can do nothing. Um, and I pray for our friends this morning and our family. Um, I pray for those um, as they're about to hear, listen to your word proclaimed. Um, God, will they have ears to hear and eyes to see uh, the beauty of your word? God, and as you reveal um, any any sin in their lives or just lack of hope, Lord, will this will your word just provide that that growth in their lives. God, and I pray that if uh, some of us may have had a rough week and we could come feeling broken, uh, feeling hopeless, uh, feeling tired. Others have had a great week and we're excited about what's ahead. Father, would you just come and meet us uh, where we're at? I'm just thankful that um, you were able to do all those things, Lord. You bind uh, the wounds of of the broken, God, that you restore things that don't seem like they can be restored. And you also rejoice with us in our uh, celebrating. Uh, Lord, um, I pray that you be glorified in everything that I say and I do. And if there's anything, Lord, that is not from you, will be forgotten, Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the paradox of righteousness so as we have talked about last week, Paul really hit on grace uh, a lot. And in verse 6 it says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Other, otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So again, if we put ourselves in the place of the Jewish readers, this would have been a really alarming idea, right? Because they've been building their lives on this framework of spiritual works, and following the law. So their mindset was that blessings and um, success in life primarily came through intelligence and effort. And frankly, I don't think we have to work so hard to be in their place, because I think that sounds pretty familiar with the culture that we live in right now. Um, even if you haven't stepped foot in a church or you didn't grow up uh, with that kind of background, a religious background, uh, these laws and ways of thinking are really integrated into uh, our culture. We have a core belief that um, any reward or outcome of any situation can be measured by the amount of effort that you and I put into it. It's like a formula, right? You put in X and you get Y output. You put this much effort and you get this reward out. And many of us could disagree with that, but if you really think about it, Think of the last time you were like with, uh, at a workplace or with your family and some, someone receives something that you were pursuing and it gets you upset. Or even more, right? Someone you think that didn't deserve it 
you measure them on that and you think it's not fair. And as I was thinking about this this past week, I got together with some colleagues from, from grad school. And it was funny, right? The first thing you do, you sit down, you talk for like 20 seconds about family, and then immediately you jump into careers. And everyone starts telling their story about what the, what's the latest promotion or what the latest opportunity they got. And I found myself subconsciously starting to measure up and measure myself up against them. And I bet it, if I give you guys a little bit more time, you could probably think of similar circumstances where you go through that framework. And I think that mentality, uh, that attitude, really reveals what, the, what Paul was trying to teach to with the, the Hebrew readers. Um, and so Paul actually follows up in Romans and he says this. He says, so what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So what then? Paul is saying that salvation is not based on works. Salvation is based on grace. But Paul's question is, what then? Where does the gospel of grace go and where does it leave God's people? Where does it leave the people who have been seeking righteousness through the law? Paradoxically, Paul says they failed to obtain what they were seeking. That's the unexpected thing about righteousness that Paul wants to tell his readers. It's that in pursuing righteousness, you and I often miss it. And I want this to really settle with you guys today. Pursuing, in pursuing righteousness, you and I often miss it. Now, why does that happen? H- how does that happen? How can someone miss righteousness when they're trying to pursue righteousness and be righteous? And I think uh, Tim Keller uh, gives a good explanation to, to that. He says, a person can try so desperately hard to please God that they come to resist the idea of grace. In other words, you and I miss righteousness because we misunderstand it. Righteousness is not a destination on a map. Righteousness is a gift of God's grace. And Paul said the same thing to the church in Corinth. If you read uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew, knew, knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul is talking about Christ here. So you and I cannot achieve what is only meant to be received. The righteousness of God is what we are given when and only when Jesus has taken away our sin. Righteousness is an exchange. It's not a reward. That is only through the work of the gospel of grace. And do you see this with the story of Israel? They failed to obtain that righteousness. They failed to please God because righteousness and divine pleasure can't be obtained. It must be received. And this is why their hearts were hardened. It's not that they were harsh or that they were unfeeling people. It's that they combined their eagerness, right? This desire to seek God and combining that with the pride of their own abilities, it resulted in a heart that was not open to grace. And I was thinking about other places where Jesus talks about this. So if you guys could turn with me to Luke um, chapter 18.
Luke 18, uh, verse 9. And it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into a temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, who would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the Pharisee, the religious one, was the one that was full of knowledge and understanding of the law, and he comes to God with his own sense of righteousness. What I find interesting in this passage, too, is the fact that Christ doesn't even point out whether the Pharisee is actually doing what he said, right? It didn't really matter if he was actually doing what he was saying. What mattered was, and he was trying to reveal something about himself, he was trying to say, do you come to God with your own righteousness? Or do you know that when you come to God, you can't come with anything that you call your own, including your righteousness? This made me think about how we think of others in general. Is there someone that you and I hold in contempt or we despise? Is there someone that you or I say to your father, thanks for not making me like that person? See, we think in our lives that in this world, things will be fixed with our hustle and with our effort. Spiritually, like Israel, we believe we get to God through thinking right and doing right. But the scriptures teach us that the righteousness and redemption only comes through grace. Moral eyes will not be able to see authentic righteousness, and moral ears will not be able to hear the truth. Righteousness only comes through grace. Let's continue with verses 8 through 10 in Romans. It says, As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Paul goes back to Isaiah, Deuteronomy, and Psalms in this part of the passage to explain the nature of Israel's supernatural consequences. And he actually did that in Romans 10 as well. And really, he points out a pretty somber picture, right? We see that God gave Israel a spirit of stupor, that God gave Israel eyes it couldn't see, God gave Israel ears it couldn't hear, God made their table a snare and a trap. God made their eyes darkened. And God made their backs bend forever. 
So we see here that God intervenes. And this isn't kind of a natural course of things. This is what we call divine and supernatural consequence. And on the first pass, it feels a bit overwhelming. However, I tell you that divine intervention is another way of seeing God's incredible grace. The fact that sin bears consequence is a gift of God's grace. It's like a spiritual wake-up call for all of us. It's guardrails to protect us from further destruction. You see, as much as sin brings about natural and supernatural burdens, like pain, discomfort, and suffering, it opens our eyes to see the brokenness, injustice, and idolatry. And if we're open to it, it leads to repentance. I think consequences really reveal God's grace. See, God demonstrates his love for his people by giving us immediate and light and temporary consequences so that he can protect us from future, lasting, and larger consequences. In Romans, God, uh, in Romans Paul says that God uses confusion, blindness, deafness to get Israel's attention. He used the table, right? A place where you feast and you enjoy and you celebrate. I think about the table around our family. This is kind of the best spot where you have your friends over uh, and you're just able to partake and enjoy each other's company to cause this stumbling and this darkness. This is a way that he's trying to wake up his people, like a clanging symbol to wake them up from their idolatry and to lead them to a dependency on him. So my question to us today is, how might God be getting your attention right now? What natural consequences are you facing which might be a means of God's grace? What supernatural consequences have you experienced which protected you from greater demise? And of course, you know, I like to always think about this stuff before I share um, and see how God's impacted me in this area. And really what he reminded me over and over was, for me, it was the area of lust over time. Really, you know, before meeting Lindsay, whether it was premarital sex or pornography, um, those fleeting passions resulted in a lot of shame and discontentment for me. And those were part of my natural consequences. And then continuing that pattern over time brought a supernatural co consequence of hardening my heart. And yet, at the same time, I see, I saw over time the beauty of Jesus as he was wooing me back to him. And really, he's the only one that was able to take off the scales from my eyes. I really can't explain it. The other thing that I saw from that is that these natural consequences don't immediately happen. You know, I can say, yeah, I haven't looked at pornography for 10 years, wh whatever, but even post-marriage, it was an issue for us to, to be intimate and we had to walk through that um, because we had to get a, a deeper sense of how much those, those, what the result of those consequences can bring. And I think what it brought me in that matter uh, of our marriage, it just reminded me of God's holiness. And also, it was a way for us to know uh, God's power and his ability to restore anything that's broken. So I can say that again, that's, that's evidence of God's grace. And I think what comes to mind for now that, that uh, God was revealing me was really just the sense of consumerism that just often plagues a lot of us. You know, we're bombarded 
all the time. I just get all these feeds, whether it be an email or um, whatever I've subscribed to, just reminding me of how much, you know, things can fill that need, that gap. And really, there's, there's, there's obvious, like, natural consequences when we do that. You know, I think of debt, <laughs> dissatisfaction, and really how we idolize things. We, we don't prioritize our loves correctly. And again, our hearts become hardened over time. But at the same time, I see that emptiness uh, generating a, a wooing of God's spirit back, back to the fold. And then we f- realize that there's really nothing else that, that, there's nothing else that satisfies us like Jesus can. That really we already have what we've been looking for. Right, David? And as a point of clarity, I, I want to be really careful here. I want to, I know that it's hard to always uh, be certain about consequences. We have to be careful not to like over-spiritualize the challenges that we face. Um, However, I I do think it's good for us just to be thoughtful and reflective about kind of any inconveniences, pains, or even sufferings that you and I face. It's just an opportunity for us to ask the Lord, God, what are you saying through this? What are you teaching me? How is this a mark of your grace. The third point that I want to draw to all of you is to look at the power of grace. One of the biggest reasons that it makes it hard for even for us to interpret consequences is because we know that Jesus has already endured and taken our cosmic consequence. Remember, he who knew no sin became sin for us. The reason that Paul was able to say this is because Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to pay our penalty. Jesus came to take our consequence. And this is what theologians called um, substitutionary atonement. It simply means that Jesus took on our consequence, namely that, that he suffered the death that you and I deserved. And this is the only way that we could ever be fully relieved of the consequences that we had. Writers Mark Dever and Michael Lawrence explain it this way. We can only be saved from the penalty our sins deserve by the very one we've sinned against, God himself. So in some way, death is both a natural and a supernatural consequence. Every time we sin, some expression of death shows up in our world. We see that in broken relationships and separations, in shame and suffering and so on. But there's also a consequence of death that entered the human story through the word of God back in the Garden of Eve. In Genesis 2, 15, 17, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work in and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of my tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in in that day, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So death also came through divine intervention. So what does this all reveal about the power of grace? Well, three things is with the power of grace, you're able to grow in dependency. While you and I should not sin, we keep doing it. And we can see God's grace through those natural consequences. Natural consequences lead us to more and more dependent on Jesus and to trust more in the gospel. God redeems the burdens and challenges of sin by inviting us to be more aligned on the Father. 
Romans 5.20, this is what Paul is trying to tell us. He says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Jesus is able to walk with you and me, and he's prepared and he's eager to care for us as we face the effects of our sinful daily hearts. The other thing is we are able, with the power of grace, we're able to see that we become citizens of the uh, the kingdom. Supernatural consequences lead us out of this age into the age to come where we're going to be with God forever. This is what what led Paul to continue that thought in Romans 5.20 and into 21. He says, so that as sin reigned in death, great also, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ of our Lord. Because of Christ's victory, even the consequence of death invites us into the life to come, which is freed from death. Jesus goes before us, securing li- life after death. Thirdly, grace has the power to transform. Unlike the works of the law or us seeking our own righteousness that leads only to this kind of superficial righteousness, grace changes us from the inside out. It makes us more dependent on Jesus. We become citizens of heaven and we become a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, this is what it's all about. The works of the law, they're actually not redemptive because they're not transformational. Only grace is able to melt our hearts from that cold moralism and legalism that we carry with us so that we're able to worship God through our love and obedience. And ultimately, a life that is transformed by grace and hardened by, by moralism is actually something that God chooses. So brothers and sisters, grace and love, grace, grace has a power to transform. So going back to my three points, the paradox of righteousness is that we cannot achieve it, that you and I can only receive it by grace. The gift of consequence is that it makes us more like Christ. And lastly, the power of grace is what actually transforms you and me. You can pray with me. Father, thank you. for the clarity of your word. I know even uh, being able to sit through this and being reminded how often I think about uh, my own pursuit of righteousness, really misunderstanding it, still trying to hustle and work for my righteousness, not knowing that all the time it's a gift. It's something that you've given. Lord, it's not a place in the map that I should go after. It's something that's given by grace. Thank you for that. Lord, I also thank you for the gift of consequence. Uh, I've seen it in my life, and I see it in the lives of brothers and sisters when I chat with them. Seeing how you graciously provide these momentary times of affliction to bring us back to you, to draw us back uh, to the Father. And I just love this message of hope, God, that your grace is what actually transforms us that it's not the superficial righteousness, that it's something deep within that you've granted through, through Christ, that he himself is grace revealed to us. So Father, I pray that we're able to hear these truths and we're able to believe these truths, Lord, and we're able to build our lives around them. 
In your son's name we pray. Amen.